morning, church. What's up, New York? I'm super excited to be here. Uh, to me, New York is such a pillar of our country, such a pillar of, our, of honestly being in Harlem, of the black community. Um, I, I'm like almost in awe, like how you hear artists talk about going to the garden to do performances and stuff. That's how I feel being here in New York. So I'm super excited. I heard y'all give a lot of feedback. That's good. I love it. Bring it to me. Uh, I'm just having a great time just being here in New York. Got to spend some time with the youth and family leaders. Super encouraging group of people. Um, got to share a lot of things about we, we live in Chicago, Southside, urban ministry. Yeah. A lot of our ministry sounds like similar to what uh, James was sharing with us, some of the things you guys face here in New York. So I feel like we're going to have a good time today. As he mentioned, this is an interesting message that we're about to do. I've gotten all different types of feedback. Uh, some of the things I say may rub you a certain way. Here's what I ask. Give me to the end. No matter how you feel in the beginning, give me to the end. I, I feel pretty confident that if you hang with me to the end, the end will make everything I say in the beginning make sense. All right? So give me to the end. Otherwise, I'm not the fastest runner, but I will get out of here as quick as possible. Nah. Today we're going to talk about a lesson that I care a lot about. This is Dr. Martin Luther King's weekend. And it's coincidental, but it's very fitting that I want to start with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. It says, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but one must take it because it is right. That's what I feel like right now. I'm joking. But that's what we're challenged to do. We're going to talk about perspective. And this concept that we can have very strong feelings and opinions about everything, but we have to fight harder and fight more to gain a perspective of others, while as disciples, we ultimately go after God's perspective. So we're going to talk about some things. Let's start off by talking about just what this word perspective really means. And it's that idea that two people can be in the same place at the same time. They can experience the same event at the same time. Us as Americans, we can have the same history. But depending on where you stand, you can see things completely different and be absolutely right. And I say that intentionally. I'll, I'll tell you something that I learned. Um, I like to travel. Uh, uh, if you looked at our bio online, my wife is from Kenya. I'm from Chicago. I actually met her on uh, planning out and going on one of my trips that I like to do to go around the world and just, just get to see other countries and cultures and things like that. But the first trip I went to, I was in Trinidad. And, uh, oh, we got some Trinidadians. Okay. Oh, my gosh. You know how to uh, make bust up shot? Oh, we'll talk later. Okay. <laughs> But I'm in Trinidad. This sister pulls me to the side, and she says, let me tell you what's wrong with the U.S. I'm like, here we go. Let's hear this. She says, she, she takes me to a, a Trinidadian sister, somebody you look at, and you would think they're from Trinidad. 
she asked them, uh, what's your nationality? They say, I'm Trinidadian. And then she asked them what they eat for breakfast or something on Sunday. I, I can't remember what they said, but they said something. Then she goes to a, someone that looks Indian or from the Middle East, something like that. She asks them, what's your nationality? She says, I'm Trinidadian. Then she asks her, what did you eat for breakfast on Sunday? She said the same thing. Then she goes to an Asian sister. Completely, matter of fact, this wasn't even a room full of disciples. This person wasn't even a disciple. And she asks her, what's your nationality? She says, I'm Trinidadian. She says, what do you eat for breakfast on Sunday? Said the same exact thing. She told me, the problem with the U.S. is you all fight so much over your differences that you don't recognize how much you have in common. So as we talk about this, I want us to keep that in mind. We're fighting to connect, right? We're fighting to come together. I'm going to give some examples. And we're going to go to a place that, again, it can rub some people the wrong way, but stick with me. Stick with me. We're going to talk about the Civil War. And we're going to talk about different perspectives from the Civil War. My intent is not to change your point of view. My intent is not to get you upset or anything like that. My intent is not even to necessarily give you what my point of view is. I'm just going to share with you a perspective that we don't necessarily consider when we look at the Civil War and that entire time period. First, there's a common perspective. This was the war against slavery. It was a war to free slaves, and that was the ultimate goal and what we got out of it. Alternate perspective. This was simply a war to demolish secession from the Union. It was a fight to make sure that the United States stayed united. It was a war against the control of the government and an attempt to say, you can't make us do what you want to do. Slavery was simply an offset of the war, something that happened along the way. If you look at the U.S. during right around the time of the Civil War, there were three different types of uh, areas in the U.S. There were the free states, the slave states, and territories. And let me throw this other disclaimer out there. I'm not attempting to be a historian or a history teacher or anything like that, right? I did accounting, and now I do youth and family. I'm just trying to make a point. Most of my uh, 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 references come from Google, so I'm not trying to impress or anything. So this isn't one of those, oh, you know what, that's not 100% correct. Let's get it close and we'll get the point across. But we were made up of free states, slave states, and territories. Now, what was interesting is right before the election of 1860, it was a time period where the free states had just started to outnumber the slave states. What's interesting about that is for the free states, they put all of their money into infrastructure right, into manufacturing, into building buildings and companies, building the roads and all of that stuff. Well, the slave states put all of their money into slavery. So when we talk about slavery, we often think of things like, was it moral or was it not moral? But if you were a slave state, you had to think about much more, because this is where everything you had was invested. If you talked about, well, how am I going to feed my family? You had to include slavery. If you talked about the future of my people, or whatever the case may be, you had to include slavery. If you talked about, in politics, what are we going to do with taxes? Well, you had to include slavery. Like, slavery was much more than just a moral decision. It was their way of life. It was all that they knew. 
and they had to include it, and they were fighting. They were worried that now that there's more free states than slave states, well, now everything that I know to exist is slowly being taken away. 1860 election comes up. Running for the Republican Party was Abraham Lincoln. This was the new Republican Party. Abraham Lincoln was the sole person on the ballot for the Republican Party. He actually shouldn't have won. There were 15 slave states at the time. Ten of them didn't even have him on the ballot. In fact, he didn't win any of the slave states, which made up almost half of the U.S. at the time. But on the Democratic side, there were two people running, and they split the vote. What's interesting is Abraham Lincoln's views and Stephen A. Douglas were quite similar as it related to slavery. Um, Abraham Lincoln even made comments like uh, he, he promised, and I'll put this on the next slide, he promised in his inaugural speech, one, he would not interfere with slavery. He didn't feel like that was the government's role. He felt like, man, this is something that the states have to figure out on their own, which was the same as Stephen A. Douglas's. He said he wouldn't use force to keep the southern states from seceding from the Union. He just felt like, again, this wasn't the government's place. So it's ironic, Honest Abe, his first main statements were actually lies. But this was what he felt. This was actually what he believed. Soon after he was elected, within months, states started to secede from the Union. The North started to increase the amount of force that they had in the South, and ultimately the Civil War broke out. Let's talk about an important docu uh, document at that time, the Emancipation Proclamation. Common perspective. This was the document that freed slaves. Alternate perspective. This was simply a strategy to demean the South and secure Northern victory. At the time of this document, the North was losing, and they were losing bad. Creating the Emancipation Proclamation did a couple of things. A couple of the main ones was, well, now you have a lot more soldiers that can't wait to fight against your enemy. Not only that, these people know the South way better than you do. They can survive some of the elements that's making it hard for you fight, not only the, the people that you're trying to fight. Here's what's interesting, though. Only slaves in rebelling states were included. So while this document did initiate freeing slaves, it only freed slaves for states who were rebelling against the U.S. at the time. In fact, if a state said we're no longer going to rebel, they were allowed to keep their slaves based off of the document. A slave had to break free and make it to the North to gain freedom. So this document that freed the slaves actually had a couple of clauses in it that made it a little bit challenging. Here's Lincoln's Secretary of State actually said, we show our sympathy with slavery by emancipating slaves where we cannot reach them and holding them in bondage where we can set them free. So this document that freed the slaves actually had some issues with it. You know what I mean? National, national emancipation didn't come till 1865. What's the reality though, right? The Civil War did lead to the end of slavery. Some will argue that that was coming anyways, 
as you can see, the U.S. was already starting to shift the balance between free states and slave states. But the Civil War did push it forward a little faster. The Emancipation Proclamation did begin the process of freeing slaves. If nothing else, this whole time period shifted how people like Abraham Lincoln and other people in government thought about slavery and how much of an importance it became in politics that we had to end it as a country. Did I lose anybody yet? It's quiet out there. I heard Harlem was loud. It's kind of quiet. We're going to keep going. <laughs> What's interesting is, though, history looks different when we look at it through different perspectives, right? Here's something else from history. Um, I said I met my wife in Kenya. We were in a part of Kenya on the uh, what, eastern coast, uh, eastern coast of Africa, and we went to a city that was known as a slave town. This was a slave cave, and you can't see it really well, but this is a place, they called it like a slave warehouse. Um, on the bottom picture, there's actually steel chains connected to the stone where they would have locked up slaves. You know what I mean? And it was such a, a challenging place to the point where they said the value of a slave was so little that if the, the tides came in and the area flooded, they just let them go out with the tide because it was so easy to replace them, right? If we had a flood in our basement, we're trying to save carpets, TVs, all that stuff. But the value of a person was so little that they were like, ah, we can replace them easy. What's interesting is this was actually ran by Africans who would go and get slaves, load up the warehouses. As the whites, the Europeans, Americans, and all this stuff came, then they would get the slaves and take them away to these other countries. Now, this is one on the East Coast. These were all over South Africa and all these different places. Here's what's interesting about Africa, though. I know for sure in Kenya and much of Africa, um, racism is not a big thing. You know what I mean? To a certain extent. There is some attitudes towards British and other countries because of what they did in their country. But everybody is black. You know what I mean? My wife came, told me when she came to the U.S., she didn't understand what it really meant to be black until she got to Chicago. Because everybody was black. You know, she knew it related to the color of our skin, but as far as the, the animosity, the tension that exists between black people and white people, she didn't understand that until she got here. But they're not short on hate. For Kenya, their hate is based off of tribes. Because that's where the division comes from. If you think about other parts of the world, right, you, you think about European history, a lot of the hate that exists there was based off of countries and where you come from. I actually lived for a little while in a, 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 a white neighborhood, Caucasian neighborhood. I don't know how those words affect you guys. But I lived there for a little while, and funny enough, I got much less attention than the Polish people, the Italian people, and all that stuff, because they were from countries that the people that I lived around weren't from. And so they were the ones that got picked on. I was cool. They, I was the only black kid they know. They hadn't got jokes ready for us yet. You know what I mean? But it was a difference. If you go to other places, it, it could be simple as a dividing line. You look at North and South Korea. Simple dividing line is what their hate is defined by. Let's look at some scriptures. We'll, we'll get in a little deeper into what I'm talking about. In Genesis 4, verse 2, it says, Now Abel kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering 
fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flocks. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Here's the reality of our world. No matter where you go, no matter what you find, you're always going to see groups of people that hate each other. Simple put. And we have to recognize that, right? Because our issue here is race. That's the, that's the dominant factor. In some areas, you get into financial differences and all of that stuff. But what we hear on the media, what we see regularly is the issues on race. That's the reason why we hate each other. Other countries, other areas, other places, they, they hate for different reasons. But the source of it is all hate. It's all sin. It's not something we created. It's not something a white person created. It's been there since the beginning of time. And as disciples, we have to recognize it. The reality of our world, of our country, is it's almost like riding a bus. And I hate that I can't remember who this comes from. I think he's actually from New York. But it's like riding a bus, right? You take different stops along the way. And in our country, we go through all these stops over and over again, like your morning routine almost. And every now and then, we'll get off at one of these stops and we'll just hang out there. And we'll spend our time at one of these stops that ultimately... Every single one of these stops is a reason why we hate each other. And what's interesting is, like, we we have an election year coming up this year, right? And we get all excited. No offense to you. That was cool. That's no problem. We get all excited. We got an election year coming up. Because we're about to pick a new new president, or we're about to pick new people in our government. And we we think this is going to be amazing. This is going to change everything. But the reality is, it's not much different than changing a person driving a bus. You may feel a little more comfortable with one person because they drive slower or maybe they go faster and they're going to get you where you want to go. But none of them change the destination. They just change how you go along a journey. And the sad thing is for us here in the U.S., it's hard to see where we're going. But we know that this trip over time has taken us farther and farther away from God. And if we're not careful as disciples, we get stuck on one of these stops instead of trying to change the route or plain and simply just getting off the bus. Let's look at how Jesus approached this. In John 4, verse 4, he says, Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now you think about this. I'm not going to go into the details right now. Many of us are familiar with it, but the simple point of it is 
she made the reference that Jesus shouldn't have been talking to her. Some might even argue Jesus shouldn't have been there because Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Largely, ultimately, what she's saying is, you shouldn't be talking to me because of the stuff that happened in our past. You shouldn't connect with me. She may even be thinking you shouldn't even be here. If you notice, uh, if you're familiar with this section of scripture, a little bit lower down in verse 27, um, his disciples come back and it says they were sitting there thinking, why is he even talking to a woman? But they didn't want to ask about it. There were so many things that said, man, you all shouldn't be talking to each other. You all shouldn't be interacting each other. This conversation shouldn't be happening. And the woman made clear, this is what I feel and this is the case. Right. But Jesus told her, look, not only do I want to break the general concept, I also want to give you something greater than what I'm asking you for. See, Jesus's desire wasn't to uh, uh, continue what everybody else was doing, but to reach out and show her, look, I want a relationship. Jesus knew that he was here for everyone, not just one particular group, one particular culture, one particular race. He was here for everyone. It didn't matter what anybody else thought around him. Society's views, the media's views, his friends' views, his own disciples' views didn't, didn't adjust what Jesus felt or was willing to do. And we're called to do the same. Now, there's this point uh, the last time I did this message where I felt the need to take a break and share some things. I was in Minnesota at that time. I'm going to just leave it at that. Let's just say that the demographics were much different. But for sake of conversation, I feel like I want to share this point, and however much it applies to this group or not, I feel like it's one of those things that's necessary. Even if it's only somebody who may be listening to it, this is recorded or something like that. I know Ross is going to listen to it, Ross Lippincott. Hey, this might be just for you, man. If you're white, I want to make this make sense. If you're white, as an example, if a black person brings up something about slavery or about the Civil War, right? They're not looking for reparations. They're not trying to get you to pay for their kids' college. They're not trying to get you to necessarily take responsibility for everything people did in the past. Much like this woman, there was this, this thought and this attempt to see, do you care? Is what we go through, is what we feel, does it matter, right? If something happens to a, a black kid on TV and they're talking about it, it, it's not saying that it's your fault, but you have to realize that they're, they're reaching out because they need somebody that cares, somebody that it matters to. If you respond in any way like, well, I'm not racist, or I never had slaves, to me that's like if someone came to you and said, man, my sister just got cancer, and you say, well, I didn't create cancer. It would sound so insensitive, right? And we have to recognize this, right? We have to have these conversations so that we can help each other. Black people. <laughs> I love y'all. But there's a reality. Honestly, we're part of the problem. We're part of the problem. If we hear or see something and our automatic reaction is that person's a racist, we never get to the place of having a conversation. 
You know what I mean? If our automatic uh, attitude is, well, I don't want to be the one that teaches this person. I don't want to be the one that talks to this person. They should know better or they should get it. We're part of the problem. I mean, think about it. Where would they get it from? You know, I shared this with the youth and family. To my knowledge, there's no communication classes or college classes on what offends black people. So if you're not willing to sit down and help them understand, why does this offend me? Why does this bother me? If you're not willing to be a part of the solution and helping, even if it's just that one person, to get it, my personal opinion is we're part of the problem. And the way we respond oftentimes perpetuates the fears that they had to begin with, increasing the problem. Does that make sense? Did I lose anybody? I have to say something to everybody else if you're not black or white. It might be different here in Harlem. This may not exist in Harlem. Other places that I've gone to has become it's something that's easily noticeable. If you're not black or white, one of our dilemmas is our culture focuses on the black and white issues so much, everybody else oftentimes gets ignored or left behind. If you're Hispanic and you go to a service, we'll throw in a song where we speak Spanish or something like that. But oftentimes we're not as good at digging in to see what are your needs, what are the things that offend you, what are the things that bother you, um, especially for some of those other cultures beyond, you know, black, white, and Hispanic. You know what I mean? And, and there's a piece of it where I feel like we owe you an apology. But there's also a piece where you have a challenge as well. For any minority, we have to start getting to the place where we speak up and talk about, man, this really bothers me. One of our challenges is we oftentimes, we, when you're a minority, your nature is to conform because that's what you've had to do all along. And so we oftentimes don't share what we feel in a nice, loving, gentle way, right? So we never get our needs met and we hold these bitter roots because we're just continuing to conform. But this isn't what happens in this conversation with Jesus. Jesus listens to and hears every single point that she makes. Even when he doesn't agree, he responds to it. But the other piece is she shares every single thing that bothers her. Starting off from why are you even talking to me and our people don't like each other. We have to get to a place to have these conversations if we're ever going to deal with the hate that's a part of our country. And if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes creeps into our ministries and even our own hearts. Let's dig a little deeper into this. Because this isn't just a suggestion from the Bible. This is our obligation as disciples. Whenever we get stuck on one of those stops and that becomes more important than God, we're, we're not following what we were called to. In John 4, 19, the woman said, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship with the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And here's what's important. You see, Jesus was honest and real 
about her perspective. He says, yeah, you're right about that. He didn't have a problem sharing the shortcomings of his people, and he, he was interested and knew the shortcomings of her people. But he said, ultimately, our goal is not to argue over who's right or wrong. Our, our goal is not to argue over whose uh, uh, politician is going to be the best change for our country. Our goal is not to argue over uh, 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 all of these other issues, but our goal is to fight for us to come together because that's ultimately what God desires. And we have the ability, whether you're a teen in high school, um, um, just diving into maybe just seeing some of these social challenges, right? Or you're an adult that's been around for years, maybe even experienced some of these things. I actually did this lesson in our own ministry. Our, our ministry in Chicago on the south side is much similar to this. We're about 95, 96% black. And by that, I mean we have black people and like four or five white people and a couple of Hispanics, and that's our ministry. You know what I mean? I, I did this lesson there for the first time that I did it, and I had a brother come up and was like, man, you know, I actually uh, saw whew, my grandfather get hung from a tree. And I was hiding till everybody left, and I had to cut him down to save his life. And that's there. You know what I mean? It's a part of our history. It's a part of our, our country. But that doesn't have to be a part of how we worship together, how we connect together, how we move forward together. But it only happens if we're willing to be different ourselves and change ourselves and fight for these other perspectives. In John 13, 1 through 5, we're going to start wrapping it up here. It says, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, and, and before I move forward, I want you to think about this. That word right there, so, as small as it is, I think when I read this scripture, that's the most powerful word in this entire set of scriptures. And I'll tell you why in a second. It says, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he was wrapped around, that was wrapped around him. And here's why I think that scripture is so, that, that word is so powerful. When you have a sentence like this, right, and you throw in that word so, right, that word basically says that whatever I said before should make whatever I do after make sense. Give you an example. Help me out with this. If I say, um, I'm hungry, so, yeah, I got something to eat. You know what I mean? Or I fainted or I did something. But it makes sense, right? I'm thirsty, so, I got something to drink. It makes sense, right? That word so dictates everything that comes after it, right? What the Bible is telling us that Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew he was about to die, and he knew he was going to suffer, right? Right after this, his thinking, his process, and everything that was going to happen had him so stressed that we read that he's, his sweat was like drops of blood. He knew exactly what was going on. It says Jesus knew who was going to do it. 
He even pointed it out amongst his group of disciples. He said, look, I'll tell you, I'll show you who's going to do it. He knew exactly who it was. says he had the power to do anything he could. I'm imagining Harlem is much like the south side of Chicago in many ways. If that preceded that word so, for many of us, what comes after would look much different, right? You about to hurt me. I know who you are, and I can do anything I want to. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? And this is Jesus. Like, they don't even have to know what he's about to do. He could just, woo, and we good. Everything ends. But it says, for Jesus, it says, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See, for Jesus, the honest truth is, it doesn't matter what comes before the soul. It doesn't matter how bad he was treated. It doesn't matter how bad he's going to be treated. It doesn't matter what their history was. It doesn't matter what he knows about their future. The only thing that makes sense after the so is for him to love. It's for him to take care of people. It's for him to connect with people. It's for him to fight for what God wants to fight for, and that's for us all to come together. That's all that makes sense after the so. Nothing else makes sense. There's no other option after the so. In John 13, 34 through 35, it says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, there was some time ago I was reading this scripture and I, I wrestled with this thought. It says, A new command I give you. And I said, For this scripture, why is it that we need a new command of all the scriptures? What's interesting is when you see this, in other parts of the New Testament, right, it's listed as one of the greatest commandments. You know what I mean? And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether there's one part where he's talking to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they're asked, what's the greatest commandment? They say, love God, and then they quote this, right? When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He talks about loving God, then he quotes something similar to this, the old command, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what I mean? And it's so crazy, as important as that commandment was, like you see this pattern that you can't share the greatest commandment without sharing this piece. That's how important it is. Like they don't exist separate from each other, whether you're Jesus or the people that have taught the law for their entire life. Following it or not, they couldn't deny how important this was in comparison to the greatest commandment. So what's the problem with it? Said to love your neighbor as yourself. See, the challenge was up until this point, all we had as an example was us. And for many of us, part of our challenge with loving other people is that we have a limitation on how much we love ourselves. And so there was a dilemma, not from God, but with us, because up to this point, we hadn't had an example to show us how to really love. What I mean is this, if you're watching something on TV and you see somebody hurt somebody, God forbid it's a little kid, and you see they're going to be punished or tortured or whatever the case may be. Some people jump them and beat them up. There's a part of us that feels like, well, if I did that, then I should get the same punishment. Or if, I, if that was me, I would do the same thing. You know what I mean? Because there's a limitation on us loving ourselves. 
Or maybe we have insecurities or we have struggles that many of us have. You know, I was telling James, man, I have, I'm not going to go into the details, but I have this pattern every time I preach because I get so nervous and insecure before I get up here. You know, I start off shaking. I'm, y'all might have saw it. The rest of y'all didn't see it. So just think I'm confident. But I get nervous every time I speak, no matter where it is. And for some of us, because of that limitation in loving ourselves and seeing our weaknesses, it makes it hard for us to love others. And this was the first point where we had where there's an example that says, look, no matter what happened before, no matter what you know about the future, the only response is to love. We never had the example before. So now Jesus can say, look, not from what you know or what you've known. Look at the way that I've loved. This is what he's calling his disciples to. This is what he's calling us to to change the patterns that this world brings us, to change the patterns that this world goes by, and to really love the way, not the way we think we should love, but the way Jesus loved. (laughs) Ralph Waldo Emerson said, what you do speak so loudly, I cannot hear what you say. Until we learn to love like this, there'll be a limitation in our ability to truly reach and change the world. If we get this, again, teens, campus, singles, married, if we get this, whether people agree with it or not, they'll have to notice a difference. They'll have to notice a difference. Even within our own ministries, if we get this, we'll notice a difference. This is, this is a quote from me. I think this is really fitting from this group. The fact that we have a lot to accomplish doesn't mean we haven't accomplished a lot. See, sometimes we get stuck on the fact that, man, in our country, there's still a lot of work to do. You know, I'm going to be honest with you all. Y'all can get mad at me if y'all want to. I'm only here till tomorrow anyway. <laughs> it bothers me so much when people say, man, what we're going through now is just like the 50s and the 60s and all of that stuff. To me, it, it, it discredits all the work that's been done up to this point. It's to a certain degree, appreciate the 10 people that agree with me. No, I'm just saying. To a certain degree, it, it takes away the value of all the stories that I've heard from my grandmother and aunts and the things that they went through that because of their work, I don't have to go through it. You know, I was able to get a college degree. I was able to accomplish goals that they never had the opportunity to. But I would be equally ignorant to say that there's not still a lot of work to do there's still racism that, racism that goes on. I shared some stories, even with the youth and family the other day, about things that I experienced in my own life that as a kid going through some of that stuff, I wouldn't have imagined that it could happen in the time that I went through it. And it still exists today, but we've come a long way. And we have the ability to be the group, to be the people that takes us even farther in this journey. I want to end the way I started with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. It says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. The reality is the only thing that can change this world is our love. The only thing that can make a difference in our lives and the lives of people around us is us being willing to love. 
but that'll only happen if we dig deep and go after appreciating these other perspectives with our ultimate goal, fighting to get to God's perspective. Amen.